0: The book of Job tells us that man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. As certainly as the laws of physics, you can count on it that we will encounter trouble. I think we're fooling ourselves if we think that there won't be bad days. If we think we're somehow immune to the troubles that come from being human we're going to be surprised. I imagine some of you are watching the Olympics. These Olympics seem a little different to me than the previous ones. For the past forty years or so it's been customary as they televise the Olympics to, to give the backstory and to tell everybody you know what these athletes had overcome and how they had beaten the odds so that they could be the best in the world and try and get us rooting for them and that sort of thing. Well, that is still happening, but I think that this year there's an admission that there's some things are too big for us to overcome. The fact that the stands are empty shouts louder than the crowds ever could. Simone Biles, perhaps the best athlete in the entire world, Pulling out of her events because the weight of the world was too great. Reminds us that yes, in fact, some things are beyond our control. Some things are too much to handle. There are things that require supernatural help. Where you are not enough for it. When that's a case, if you know the Lord, you have a great option. If you don't know the Lord, though, all bets are off. And I just want to say good luck to you. Because what you have when you know the Lord is a place to turn in a way that will allow you uh, to get through, not just barely, but to uh, get through With flying colors. Because there will be times of trouble. There will be hard days. And what are you going to do then? There will be hard days. And when there are, there are some things you need to know. And then there are some things that you just need. There are some things you need to know, and there are some things that you just need in times of trouble. And so, let's, let's just look at the times of trouble first. And what my, my plan is to kind of go through this text three different times, uh, looking at various uh, aspects of what is in Psalm 86. So, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and look there at verse 1, because it tells us that this is our psalm. This is for us. It says, a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy for I am poor and needy there are no resources I don't have enough resources it's easy to th- look at poor and needy and think oh those people are financially not very well off that thing has nothing to do I don't think with finances it has instead to do with the emotional resources That we need to make it through hard times. I don't know how that is for you, but for me, it's really, uh, that's really the case. Is that I just don't want to do it again. I just don't want to do, to fight the battle one more time. Poor and needy is a measurement of the emotional resources at my disposal I think it's an admission too that things are out of control they're bigger than I can account for with my own self effort and my simply trying harder not everything's like that and I I want to make the distinction because it's one thing to pray Lord help me get out of bed at 7 in the morning it's another thing to set your alarm You're not poor and needy with respect to what it takes to get up in the morning. If you want to get up in the morning, set your alarm and get up. Pray about it if you want, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about those things that are beyond that, that are harder than that. We're talking about the things that you just don't have the gumption for any longer. To make it a little more clear, verse 7 tells us that this is a day of my trouble. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you answer me. What's the day of trouble? This is my day of trouble. What is that? The good news is we don't know. We don't know what the day of trouble is. In that respect, it doesn't matter Because your trouble may not be David's trouble. Your trouble might be different. Certainly it's different. You might be a student and you fail a test. That's trouble. Or you sit at home lonely when your friends go to party. That's trouble. You lose your job or get a bad medical diagnosis. All of those aspects of trouble work here. This is my trouble. It's a day of my trouble. And so... The application of this could hardly be more broad. Now, verse 14 does narrow it down. David tells us what is his trouble. So if you look at verse 14, uh, and it's typical David trouble. It's not my trouble. It's David's trouble. There are, well, some people trying to kill him. There's that. Verse 14, O oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life. They do not set you before them. So his problem is that, well, there are some people trying to kill him. Now, while that's not ever happened to me, I can't say, oh, I have exactly the same trouble as David. No, I have a day of trouble. It's just not this. And the interesting thing, though, is at the end of verse 14, there is an aspect of the trouble that he has that does happen to me. And that is, it says, they do not set you before them. The other problem that uh, they have is they don't regard God. There is this atheistic impulse here, and it's in the ruthless men, but it's in a lot of other aspects of my life. It's in the fact that I have trouble because I'm preoccupied or trouble because um, uh, I'm criticized or trouble because of any other thing, If, if that doesn't have regard for God or isn't doesn't help me move toward God. It is a day of trouble that is much like David's. They're the kinds of things that move me away from God's agenda for my life. And so when you have the day of trouble, and, it, and it could, you'll have one. If you don't have one, I'd love to talk to you afterwards because, well, I've never met anyone like you. Because you can be certain that part of being human is having trouble that you can't deal with. And this psalm is about what do you do then? And specifically, what can you know that sets the foundation for you to get through it? What can you know for sure that will move you to pray to a God who can really, really help you? So let's take a look at some of the things the prayer of this psalm knows. Because what he knows will shape the way that you pray. So let's take another pass, looking at things that we need to know as we pray. Begin in verse 5. It says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving. Abounding steadfast love to all who call upon you. Just my reading it is really enough, isn't it? To to let you know why you need to know this. Why you need to be absolutely certain of these things. You, O Lord, are good. Think about it. If God's not good, what do you have? I mean, you literally got nothing. If God's not good, why would you cry out to him for help? If he's up there in heaven sort of chuckling at your misfortune, and you're going to call out to him, and he's just going to say, ha ha, you got your stuff in you, get your stuff out. How's that going to help you? He's not enjoying your unhappiness. He's good. His character is such that only good things come out. He is only good. And because he's good, you have to know that before you ever start. Because when the day of trouble, most of us interpret the day of trouble to say God's not good. That's our definition of trouble. He gave me trouble, therefore he shouldn't have, therefore he's not good. And you know what? The scripture reveals him to be good even when you have trouble. And you must know that there is no chance that he will not be good. You need to know that. You also need to know he is forgiving If you're inclined not to ask for help, maybe it's you think, oh, I could pray, but I got myself into this, right? It's my my own mistake, my own doing that caused this, so why would he help me? Maybe you were even rebelling against him and going your own way. Why should he help you? It's really helpful to know, isn't it, that he's good and that He's forgiving. And that those things, even that you did against Him, He will let go, and He will forgive. And you can know that. You can be absolutely certain that that's the way God is. He abounds in steadfast love or covenant love. God's covenant love is such that He makes a promise And he is faithful to that promise. He will never waver and he will never stop keeping his word. He has pledged himself to his people in what we call the new covenant. We're going to celebrate that new covenant in a few minutes as we take communion. But when he's abounding in this steadfast love or covenant love, it means that he has affection for you. So, even as you're praying, you are praying to a God who has affection for you and is committed to keeping up His end of the bargain. You are safe in His love, and He will never give up on you. Verse 8, you need to know that God is unique among all God. Look at this, there's none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. I hope that it's helpful to you to know that God is not merely an intramural God. He's not a God of a tribe or a, a small group of people. He is the God of the whole world. He created it with a word, and He intends for all of the nations to come and worship before Him and glorify Him. God has God has let us know that is His mission and intent. It's been His plan since the beginning. He told Adam and Eve at the very beginning, once He made this world, He said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. His his plan was to get the word out that He loves His people throughout the world. It's his plan at the end of the world as well. Revelation tells us they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. The mission of God is such that He will be praised and worshipped and glorified from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. And that's who your God is. He is the God of the whole world. Not only is He the God of the whole world, He is unique among all other rivals. There's no God like our God. He is in a class by Himself. Your prayer is not you crying out to someone who is merely average. Nor are you praying to a pipsqueak. Rather, you're praying to the God who stands alone, who is categorically different than every other being in the universe. And, it goes on to say, there are no works like His. He has a proven track record. He has been faithful to his people in the past. He will be faithful to his people in the future. He is able to do amazing things that no one else can do. Will you call on him when you have a day of trouble? Or will you just try and power through? He goes on to say, he, is, he alone is great and does wondrous things. Some translators prefer impossible things. He does impossible things. Now, it doesn't take much recollection of Bible stories, does it, to, to think of impossible things. Whether it's the, the parting of the Red Sea or uh, whether it's uh, just the defeat of army after army without a, a fight at all, not to mention the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If you need to know in verse 5 that God is good, here in verse 11, you need to know that He's great. That He isn't just one or the... You don't have to choose between, will he, will he do good to me or will He be strong enough to help? With God, you get both. Nothing can thwart his plans, nor stop him. Won't you call upon him? Doesn't that just make you say, okay, I'll pray. Then verse 13, you're thinking, is he he ever going to stop? I mean, this just keeps going and going. Great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Great or abundant is your covenant love. This is a repeat of verse 5. He repeats it because it's worth noting that God is always faithful, God is always inclined to keep his promises. And David is claiming, I mean, David had a different covenant than you. David had a, a promise that he would have, a, uh, that he would be on the throne, and his children would be on the throne after him. God made a covenant with David, and David acknowledges here, God saved me from the depths of Sheol, or the depths of the grave, and that's in keeping with the covenant that he made. But I want to tell you, he made a different covenant with you. He made what we call the new covenant which says, I'll take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Put my spirit within you. And he did that because of the, and sealed it really with the blood of Jesus. And so for David to say, yeah, I saved my soul from the depths of Sheol is a small thing compared to all that God has done to save your soul through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, verse 15 goes on to give us more reason to pray, more uh, reason to esteem God, more that we must be certain of if we are going to pray effectively. But You, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Really, we have it again here, don't we? His um, steadfast lover's covenant love. Reasons here that God should be the one that you pray to. It isn't just that He's powerful and great. That He does impossible things that no other being in the universe can do. It's not just that, it's that He's also tender and compassionate, merciful and gracious. He is inclined toward you in love, not just toward the world in power. He is both. It's one thing to say that He is forgiving, that you offend Him and He gets angry and then He can forgive you. It's another thing to say, yes, he's that. And even before that, he's slow to anger. He's patient and uh, tolerant. And he withholds judgment on whom it's due. I feel like I could go on and on about what you must know when you go to God in prayer. But I I just want to stop and say, do you know why this showed up in our psalm, why verse 15 showed up in Psalm 86 to tell us what we should know about God? Or let me ask you a different way. How did David know that God was, in fact, um, forgiving, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness? How did David know that? He knew it because it's in his Bible. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, Moses had been on the mountain and met with God. God said, I will show you my glory. And then he gave him this. He said, I'm slow to uh, anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And there you have God revealing himself and Moses writing it down so that David got to know the character of God, guess what? The same way you get to know it. By, by reading his revelation in the Bible. And I, I say that because in order to know the God you would pray to, you must know your Bible. Or to turn it around to say, you cannot know who you are praying to without knowing how he has revealed himself in his word. Let me simply say, if you are going to be a person of faith, the most important thing is not how much faith you have. Some of us say, oh, I only had more faith. And somehow we just sort of want to, work it up you know what you can't do that it does not work that way the most important thing about your faith is the object of your faith what do you know about the person you trust that's what you have to know that's what he tells us here in psalm 86 this is the god i trust in when he gets god figured out like that of course he's going to trust him if he doesn't know who god is It's going to be a shot in the dark. And I think that's how most people view prayer. Well, I'm just going to say something here and hope somebody out there hears me. Or somehow, I'm going to talk to the man upstairs. The man upstairs, you you can do better than that. You know who he is and how he's revealed himself. And when you start there, then all of a sudden you've got somebody to talk to about your problems. And your trouble takes on a whole different cast when it's seen In view of God and His Word. So yes, be assured He is faithful, forgiving, slow to anger, full of covenant love, unique, powerful, and great, good, and compassionate. If He's all that, why would you make only a half-hearted attempt to get to know Him? Because times of trouble will come. They will come, and you will need to know who it is you're talking to when they come. That's really the foundation. But what if you know who it is you're going to talk to? What are you going to say to him? Okay, you got a God who's, who's great, who's good, who's forgiving, who's slow to anger, who keeps covenant love, and what are you going to say to a God like that? Let's look, take another quick pass through this psalm, and I just want to highlight here for you what what might classically be called the prayer requests, right? Because a lot of times we have prayer requests. And what is a prayer request generally? Prayer request generally is, I'm going to give God some advice here. I know He's omniscient, I know He knows everything, but I'll bet He's not thought of my thing here. So let me give you some, some pointers. And that's sort of how we pray. Like, you know what? I'm, I'm not feeling very good. So, hey, I'd really like to feel better. And we pray, make me feel better. Or heal my leg. That was my prayer for a long time, right? Like, he's never thought of that. He doesn't need that. I want you to notice. I want you to notice a completely different flavor of prayer requests here. Okay? Starting in verse 1. A prayer of David. Incline your ear, O oh Lord, and answer me for I'm poor and needy. So the first prayer request is such as just incline your ear. Cup your hand behind your ear. I don't have the strength to shout. This is like a dad bending down to to pick his toddler up when he skins his knee. cradling him in his arms. Just just listen. It's like, what happened? Let me tell you. And there's that tender conversation. That's the flavor here. Answer me. That's the second one, right? For I am poor and needy. I I just need your attention here. Respond to me. Let me know that we're communicating here. That's the kind of prayer request you see in Psalm 86. Verse 2, preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. The next one is preserve my life. It might be as simple as don't let me do anything stupid. He says, for I am godly. And Unless you think, well, I'm not godly. I think, I think the flavor of this is that he is, I don't know, spiritual or pious. Basically, this is the way I would say it. Preserve my life because I'm trying. I'm trying. I mean, have you ever had a conversation with God about like that? He says, God, I don't have many answers. I can't, I can't say the right thing, but I just want you to know I'm trying. Would you preserve my life? Then he says, save your servant, the second half of the verse. I want you to notice there his self-identification because it happens throughout the psalm, that I am your servant. Likewise, he several times through the psalm, he talks about God being his Lord or his master be another way of saying Master and the relationship that he perceives himself to have with God is: you are the master, I am the servant, you give the orders, I do your bidding. I think a lot of us, when we go to prayer, we want God to help us with our thing, we want God to bless our thing. God, I'm doing my thing and it isn't working, would you help me do my thing? When he says, self-identifies as God's servant, he is essentially saying, God, I'm trying to do your thing. Would you help me do your thing and save your servant? Then in verse 3, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. What a... What a sweet prayer. God, be gracious to me. Another way, another way you might say that, okay? Because some of you, some of you I know are spiritual, and you you want to like change your voice. say, Be gracious to me, okay. Give me a break, okay. That might be another way you'd say that. Give me a break. I um, I don't know if you're familiar with Anne Lamott. She's just uh, she's not a theologian. Uh, she's a writer, and, uh, but she's uh, a Christian woman, and she characterizes grace this way. She, she says, grace is spiritual WD-40. And frankly, it doesn't work always. You can't say, oh, it's, anytime you see grace in the Bible, it's spiritual WD-40. Like, that doesn't even make any sense most of the time. But here it does. I think that's exactly what he's asking for. He says, I'm here and I'm stuck. Would you just give me just a little bit of that and loosen things up for me? Help things move just a little bit and work like they're supposed to work? Uh, be gracious to me. Well, then in verse 4, my favorite prayer request of all in this whole psalm, I wanted the whole psalm, I wanted my whole sermon to be about this prayer request. Gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Gladden the soul of your servant. It was a privilege for me to have to work on this message because I essentially discovered this as a prayer request a week before you did. And it was like, God, that's exactly what I need almost every day. Almost every day I'm tempted to try and find my happiness somewhere else. In fact, that's really what sin is. Sin is me trying to find my happiness in something other than God. And my unhappiness is almost exclusively the disappointment I have when those other things don't make me happy. And so this prayer right here is exactly the the kind of relationship prayer that, that I want for my soul God, would you just make me happy because I am coming to you. I want you to be the one that makes me happy. Gladden the soul of your servant. And that's really what our church is trying to do, is to help people be happy or to delight themselves in God through Jesus. That, that, that I think, is the entire some of the spiritual life. Like I said, I wanted that to be the whole sermon, but I'm going to have to move on. Verse 6 says, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. Give ear and listen. Two different requests that say the same thing. And this is really where I want you to notice the difference between these prayer requests and the ones that I don't know you normally pray, I normally pray. They are not suggestions about how God might run the world. They are not suggestions about how God might take away my troubles. Are they? There, there hasn't been yet a single one of those. I mean, keep me, preserve me, save me, or don't let me die because of my troubles. But then I like take them away and make my life easy again. There are no prayer requests like that. These are not suggestions about how the God who knows everything might, you know, think of something new to solve your problem. These are simply requests that are relational in nature. God, I just need to know you're listening. Will you just, will you just cup your ear and let me know you're listening? Can we just sit down and talk about the trouble I'm in. <laughs> that's all I want to do. That's a, that's a different kind of relationship with God than most of us are working on. Most of us are working on some kind of transaction thing. And it, the transactional prayer request would be something like this. God, if you help me out of this, I'll give more money to the church or God, if you'll help me here, I really won't raise my voice anymore with my kids. Or you'll make some kind of we make some kind of transaction with the Lord when it, He doesn't want a transaction. He wants a relationship with you and with me. And so, prayer is not merely about solving the problem. It's about getting to know a person. Which leads me to the next one. Verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. This prayer request is simply, teach me your way, that I may walk in your truth. This is not get me out of my trouble and then we'll make a bargain. This is, this is teach me when I'm in trouble and when I'm not to walk in your path. This is not. He, he's not asking for guidance here like help me find the right college or the right job or the right house. This is more about, God, you have laid out what you want people to do, Human, the way humans flourish. Teach me that. In practice, help me walk in that way. So that I can align my whole life with your purposes. And then the second half of that verse, my second favorite prayer request in this chapter. Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. What a weird thing to pray. I mean, it's one thing to to pray for a group or for a church to be united, and I certainly pray for that. But here he's just saying, no, 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 no. Not unite us. (laughs) The The problem isn't with us. The problem is with me. Father, unite my heart. Make my heart whole. Instead of divided. James chapter 1 verse 8 says, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. This is a prayer request that just simply says, I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be that double-minded person. Then verse 12. He says, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart I will glorify your name forever. This isn't so much a request it's just simply admission that I have lots to be thankful for, and I will glorify God with my whole heart. Notice, notice he acknowledges that God has heard his prayer for a united heart, and so he's going to respond to God now with a whole heart instead of a distracted heart or divided heart, or some kind of other um, broken heart. God, would you would you unite my heart, and I will glorify you with my whole heart then verse 16 turn to me and be gracious to me give strength to your servant and save the son of your manservant or your maidservant. three different requests there again turn to me and be gracious we've seen that again it is a it is a look at me kind of thing if you're you know somebody you've talked to somebody surely and they're on their phone right and, no no look at me that's essentially what he's saying to god let, I, I want you. I don't want just an answer. I don't simply want some kind of a change. I want you. Be gracious to me. Same request we've seen before. Give strength to your servant. The prayer It's interesting. The prayer is not for the trouble to go away, but to be strong in the trouble. To be able to stay in the trouble and not run away and not give up Save your servant. Notice every time you you read that in the Psalms, where it's talking, save your servant, save me. I mean, most of the time they're talking about some kind of physical trouble where they're being chased, and just help them not to catch up to me and kill me, save me. But it's exactly the same word, essentially, that Jesus is named after. It's a. It's the. Um, the name Jesus means salvation. And every time you're praying that, sure, you be saved from your trouble, but be saved, um, you're praying, God, my heart is not right. Would you forgive me, change me, and save me? And then we get to the last verse with a really unique prayer request. It says, show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see you and be put to shame because of you. Oh, Lord, Lord, you have helped me because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. He admits the Lord helps him and gives him comfort. Um, But most of all, and now this is just precious to me, he wants to see a sign of God's favor, a sign that God has good intentions toward me. Have you ever prayed that? Have you ever wondered when you're suffering and struggling and things are hard, it's Like God, do you, even, do you even mean good things toward me? Do you even like me? I think he's praying for that. God, show me something that indicates you like me. And I, I mean, th- these prayers are just so deep and heartfelt. I mean, they just mean so much to me to gladden your heart, or gladden my, the soul of your servant, make my heart united, uh, show me a sign of your favor. I, um, I just have to say it's uh, I think it's a legitimate thing to ask God for that, to say, show me your favor. Let me know you're listening. Because really, it, you're not after the your trouble's all going away, you're after him. And guess what? That's such a gift to you, that you have trouble. It's a gift to you that you have trouble because it's your troubles that point you to this God that you know as good and great, that you know as abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that you know, that you know is forgiving, that is merciful and gracious. And he points you there and it invites you to say, God, would you show me that you love me? Would you give me a sign of your favor? Now, he may or may not give you a sign of of his favor, that he likes you or that he's disposed toward you in a gentle and kind way. He may or may not because he already has. You have something that David didn't even really dream of as a sign of God's favor. Namely, you have Jesus on a cross for your sin as a sign that, yes, in fact, God is forgiving. As a sign that, yes, in fact, God is good. As a sign that, yes, in fact, God is great enough to solve the problems of sin caused by the whole world. As a sign of his favor, that yes, in fact, he is keeping his covenant promises in that new covenant. And so we have what David only dreamed of. We have a sign of God's favor. I mean, so much so that the Apostle Paul says if he did not withhold his only son, how will he not also along with him? graciously give us all things. You have that sign of His favor. And so, we read this not with the um, tentative worry that God might be against us, But we read this sign of His favor and this plea for grace and listening and all of these things as certain because of Christ. What a privilege we have to know and be invited into a relationship with God through Christ. And so this morning it's our privilege to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And, and really, this is, this is what why Jesus left it, was so that you would be certain you have a sign of God's favor, so that every, every time you do it, you would be reminded, Jesus volunteered to go to the cross so that God would no longer condemn you for your sin. So that his goodness would triumph over your rebellion. You have a sign of favor from the Lord. It's Jesus on the cross. And so let's remember him together. If you're a believer, I want to invite you um, to celebrate this with us. If you're here exploring uh, whether this is for you, I hope that Psalm 86 has been an encouragement And that the cross of Jesus will stand as a testimony that, yes, in fact, God God means business when it comes to saving and loving his people. And so in the the words that uh, the Apostle Paul used in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said... This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, hearing all of the crinkling of those plastic cups just makes me think what a, in some respects, what a trivial experience that just was to remember your great um, act of love on the cross. But Father, no matter what we did, compared to your love for us, it would be trivial. And so I thank you that there are no words f- to, to describe or to adequately convey the faithful covenant love that you have for us, that you exhibited on the cross of Jesus when he shed his blood for us. And thank you that that's a sign, that's a sign for us that we, we do have your favor. And so, Lord, we come to you and we humbly, Just ask that you would remind us again of your favor. Help us to pray. Help us to remember your character and cry out to you in our day of trouble. And we'll thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.